Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hi, welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Julie Fudge-Smith and I'm here with Tina Spring and we have back with us for a encore performance, Dr. Sarah Wyckoff, who has her PhD in biocultural anthropology, a master's in occupational therapy, and is currently a professor um, at the University of Augustine Health Sciences University. Did, I don't think it has university twice, but, <laughs> but yeah, anyway. it's definitely a university. university. There's no doubt about it. Yes, that's right. We're um, going to put it in the title twice, just to make sure it's no mistakes whatsoever. And what she does is she trains physical therapists and occupational therapists so that they can go out and be just as amazing as she is. So today we wanted to, Tina and I were talking before the show going, what are we going to talk about? I don't know what to talk about. Do you know what to talk about? I know what to talk about. What if we talked about this? And I said, if we talk about that, we need Sarah. So, because she's the expert in this. So it was Tina's idea. So she gets to introduce the idea and then we're going to hear the brilliance of Dr. Wyckoff. So, Welcome, Tina and Sarah, to your family dog. No pressure, Sarah. We're just going to call you up on a random Wednesday afternoon. Like, hey, we'd like you to explain everything to all of us. All right. So so the concept we were talking about, Julie and I, off air, was how kids and dogs, especially little kids and dogs, learn really similarly. That they're experiential learners who kind of learn with abandon. And sometimes that's crazy frustrating for parents, right? Because your child or your dog does some crazy creative thing. It's one way to frame it um, that you weren't expecting because my experience is as we get older, we become more and more like conformist learners, right? Whatever the teacher's expectation of us starts to become really, really important. And I know as a parent, there were times that maybe I put a little bit of that onto my poor sweet kiddos unintentionally because they didn't know any better. So I was wondering if you um, can talk to us about one, how as adults, right, we're kind of resistant to experiential learning and, and why that might be, right? Why that might be so frustrating for us, but also like the advantages of trying it with our kids and dogs, but also how to maybe get back in touch with that learner, like easy ways to grease the skids for parents so that maybe they can stick a toe in the water and see what they think about that and, and kind of get back to kind of that, that type of learning. I love this idea. Um, and I, I too find the same um, dynamics with the, the parents that I work with where I'm saying this kid needs to be played with more and uh, they think that means quizzing him. Sh Johnny, show how you gallop like a horse. You know, those kind of directive things rather than um, uh, joining in what Johnny's doing and, and running with it. So, um, and yeah, uh, that experiential learning is, is so much fun that it feels like play. And we get... Um, shut down a lot for that when we're in, in grade school for um, that exploratory, no, you need to be doing this, you need to stay on task, and you need to get these things done. Um, so a lot of it is trained out of us. 
and um, and a lot of the the demands of life keep us um, just on task so much that we forget about the experiential stuff. But it's having a dog or having a kid or having ideally both. Um, you, you there's these magic windows that you can allow the child and the dog to bring you back into that realm. It's a gift that they can bring you. Um, so I, I think so for one, the typical yeah. family, where would that, like for me, the, I always think of bath time, right? Mm. That bath mm-hmm. time is a time when all sorts of learning happens. We're teaching about hygiene. We're teaching about hold your breath. We're teaching about what it sounds when your ears are under the water. Like we're teaching about a whole bunch of stuff, but we're able to make a mess and be silly and, you know, make the bubble bikini and the mohawk. And especially mm-hmm. now, like there's so many more bath toys than even when my kids. Oh, yeah. Um, so I always think that is like a really good example of that experiential learning. Like we're doing, yes, we're doing a job. We're getting the mission accomplished. Um, the to-do list is getting a check mark, but we're also it's it really is in my experience experiential play. Um, do I have it wrong? No, no. Uh, but but what you have is an example of a mixed situation. You are doing some procedural learning and some exploratory learning simultaneously. When you're teaching about um, how, to, how to wash your hair, you know getting your ears under the water, listen to that. Um, you're, you're, there are certain procedures that we need the kids to be able to do, to tolerate. We need them to be able to tip their head back into the water and get the suds off of, off of the water. So what they need to learn some procedures. Just like with a dog, they need to learn some procedures. They need to look, sit, stay. Those kinds of procedures are important to set the safety parameters and procedural parameters for this is how we wash our hair. So parents need to teach those things too. That's and then there is the ooh, you know, we're washing your hair. What can we do with all these suds? You know, you know, tracking the the, the deliciousness of the the sudsy feeling in your hands, feeling the the wonderful massage of your scalp. Um creating crazy hairdos, all of that becomes the play on top of the procedure. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I like to to try to think like, okay, how does it smell? How does it sound? How does it feel? Right. Like to kind of think through kind of a more kinesthetic if we can, sometimes we can't like, especially now everybody has phones with a camera, right? So your kid can do the crazy hairdo and you can take the picture and they can see it and it like all the silliness. And I don't know if people still do this. Like my grandmother who was pretty hospital corners, um, like don't make a mess in the bathtub. Right. But she loved like her favorite thing when we were little girls was to use good smelly powders on us after she dried us off. Right. It was, it was like, and she made a mess with that. Like she'd be, she might be a little bit grumpy with us about like, Oh, you splashed water everywhere. Right. Cause, but there could be powder all over that bathroom and you know, she 
she thought that was funny. So um, I, I often think when I'm teaching people exercises to do with their dogs, that we are folding in that procedural learning with exploring and understanding that it's not a one-way street. Like I'm trying to learn how you perceive the world, how you interact with the world, and to get information from you that maybe would be helpful to me later in a different in a different pair of pants. Right? If if the dog is holding their breath, then I might play with stinkier treats because I would generally consider holding your breath a sign of tension and be like, we might play some sniffy games to just get some airflow going. Like, can we breathe, please? Because you seem a little tense. <laughs> so um, I often thought that with the kids, too. Like, do they always use one hand first or do they always turn one direction first or are they when they stop, is their body balanced or are they off balance? And is that maybe an indication that we've got an ear infection or we've got something else going on? So we talked about bath time. When are some other times that parents, maybe the veil is thinner between that procedure and play for parents that they can kind of look for it on their own? How about cooking? Cooking can be, um, you know, when we're talking about little kids in exploration, I mean, you might be talking about um, your your little one sitting in the high chair while you're cooking and, and handing him things to explore, you know, a, a bit of the food, a bit of uh, messiness. And just, you know, it's, 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 it's not going to hurt him. He can just be really messy with it. Um, uh, a little bit older child, it might be pouring pouring in um uh uh there is a time in most grade school children's lives where they want to go into the kitchen and they want to combine ridiculous um <laughs> items together uh -huh. and make really silly and stupid food um <laughs> yes maybe maybe that's okay for half an hour um, as long as you, you know, you, you might just set the limits and this is the, this is, this is the ingredients you can use, but go at it, see what you can do. Um, that kind of exploration is so much fun. Right. You know, one um, of the things I also think too is, is that, um, you, you, when I'm working with, with owners, um, I, they'll say, well, you know, Sparky, you know, um, he did this and he, he, then he, he just sort of ricocheted off the sofa and bounced off. And I said, and I bet that was pretty funny, huh? And they stopped for a second. They go, well, well, yeah, it was. And I said, so is there a problem with Sparky ricocheting off the sofa or is this an okay thing to have happen? And they're like, well, I guess it's okay. And so sometimes what I find is when they tell me something, I try to answer it with something like, well, that seems kind of funny to me, or that was sort of silly. And how did you feel about that? And is it okay if he does that? If you don't want him on the sofa, then we can work on that. But, you know, if he's just ricocheting himself off the sofa, maybe that's okay. And I think sometimes, too, is that people have these are given sort of expectations, like my dog's not supposed to sleep on the bed. And then they feel like they're just, I know you're going to hate me, or you're just going to think I'm something like, I had two dogs on my bed, you know, really, seriously, this is okay. There are reasons why dogs can't sleep on beds. 
But I think sometimes just allowing people to 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 say something and to affirm that that's funny, that's kind of cool, but also to being sensitive to where they can or cannot be flexible. I think about my, mm-hmm. my mother-in-law um, with cooking. She loved to cook, but she couldn't be flexible. It's just, uh, I remember I sent some stuff over to make cookies and frosting with her and the girls. And she said, well, don't you have a recipe for frosting? I'm like, no, nope. powdered sugar, milk, a little butter, throw it together till it's the right consistency. And she just panicked. She couldn't comprehend. She wanted to cook with the girls. She liked cooking with the girls. She wanted to roll up cookies with them. But I just had to work with what her limitations were. And I, so I think sometimes yeah, yeah. we also, if we want people to become more exploratory, we have to start with, you know, sort of where you're at. Why, why is this Completely. scary to you? Yeah. And th- then do you also find that with, with, with certain kids that it's, it's harder simply because they may have a touch sensitivity or... <laughs> Yeah, I find that with dogs too. Don't you, Tina? That sometimes dogs have have a touch sensitivity that you have to be really careful about how you maneuver with them because there's like I'm really sensitive to this. So, um, um, yeah, and and I mean sometimes it's parts of the body, but sometimes right. it's like you know my oldest pot cake thinks that if the grass is wet, he'll just pee in summer. <laughs> He's just like, nope, not walking in water. So. Um, do you find sometimes, Sarah, that, that parents kind of get stuck in a resistance to this kind of learning and play because maybe somebody came down on them really hard or was like, you will get in the box. You will not be a squiggly line, right? That kind of stuff. And it, and it ended up being a big negative. And so now it's just emotionally uncomfortable to go, it's okay to make a mess. Yeah, and there's two sources of it. One is individual experiences uh, or different temperaments, like like Julie's mother-in-law, who had this, this, well, that might be her experience, too. She needed to have the safety of knowing the, the recipe. Um, and then there's also the cultural component. Um, there are some cultures that value allowing little kids to do anything they want in any exploration and then about five years old they crack down and wham you got to sit down and you had your childhood now now it's time to learn and everything shifts uh there are other cultures that um you know they don't see the value in explore exploratory play or imaginative play they 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 are very very tied up with um, procedural information and you know they're very happy to give a child a um, uh, electronic learning you know where you can get the right answer and do all this academic work but they're not so sure about um, uh, if you explore and I I observed a classroom one time for a little kid I was uh, treating where this was a um, preschool and the children were all sitting in desks in rows and they were not allowed to have fat pencils. They had to have skinny pencils because that's what they were going to have to be able to write with in second grade. So we might as well start it now. And um, recess, 
one day, the day I observed recess was a rainy day recess, so it was inside. So she, the teacher put out individual puzzles for each child to do during the recess so they she didn't want the interaction so there are there are places where the culture just reinforces that kind of procedural and formal learning and does not value the the exploratory and it's very hard i find when i'm working with a family from that kind of culture to to shift the um the perspective too exploratory and um so and you know who's to say that we should maybe that's that culture should be that way um but i've also had families from those cultures say we noticed americans are so much more innovative they've got so many ideas They've got so much capacity for invention. And uh, I wonder if it's because you guys allow your children to play like this. I want you to teach me how to do it. That's and, really interesting, um, Sarah, because that's exactly what I was thinking, is that if we don't leave that creativity, that exploratory, exploratory option open, then I think that we, we may have... Um, some well-educated citizenry, but we've lost the, the creative, the artistic. And I wonder if artists aren't people who that switch didn't get turned off, you know, that, that they were the ones who were yeah. able to maintain that creative way of thinking. And, you know, I, I find it's, it's interesting because I will do something and, um, you know, Brad sometimes would go, I never thought of doing it that way. And I'm like, really? Because I don't think this is all that unusual, but he came from a family that was a little bit more like, this is how you do stuff. And I, I think the, I think during the COVID, we're all playing the why do you do that that way game. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's, it's a game where the points don't matter and no one wins. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I, I think you're probably true. That's probably true. <laughs> How true. Very, very true. <laughs> you know, um, I have read a little bit a while ago um, of, of about Thomas Edison's mom and Bill Gates's mom and how they raised their boys. And um, they were both very tolerant women, gave them a lot of space. Both of them have um, diagnoses. But that doesn't really matter. Not at all. Uh, what matters is that they've learned how to work with who they are. And I think that when you allow for the creativity to flow with a child, you learn who you are and what you can do. Right. Well, you know, Thomas Edison was homeschooled because his mother, he, because he, he, he didn't function well in school and his mother didn't think it was his fault. He thought it was the school's fault that this kid needed to have the ability to be who he was and bless her heart for that. Cause I would imagine that he was probably a somewhat difficult child to educate um, being as creative as he was. And as, you know, sort of inventive as he was, I would imagine she was probably like, I wonder what happened to my, Oh, I bet Thomas has it um, <laughs> to create something <laughs> with. So, yeah, I, I think that, um, 
there's, and I find that, that, that it's hard for parents to, in, in some ways to, to sort of battle a system that says your child needs to conform to this. And I understand that there has to be a certain way of doing things, certain rules within school in order to make things functional. But I also worry sometimes that by driving towards functionality, we lose creativity and we lose these, these, chi- these children's enthusiasm for learning. I think sometimes it just gets sort of squeezed right out of them. And, you know, it's funny because um, people will say, uh, like, the Kongs for dogs. I've had lots of dogs and lots of Kongs, and not one single dog challenged the Kong in exactly the same way as every other dog. Like my dog, Bingley, when he get a Kong, he learned at some point, I think he was standing at the top of the stairs, and he dropped it. And when it bounced, right, all the stuff came flying out of the Kong. From that point on, he would throw it in the air. And so that when it fell, all the stuff would come flying out of it. I had another very patient dog. I just lay there and I'd lick and I get every single solitary molecule of peanut butter out of the Kong. It takes me a very long time, but I'm very methodical. And Zuzu just can't be too tough. It just has to be pretty easy or it's just too intimidating for me. So I think that sometimes that dogs and kids can be really eye-opening to us and learning that there is more than one way to break an egg. In fact, my granddaughter has several different ways to break an egg. Um, but, But I think that if we allow them to, perhaps we can rediscover some of our own creativity some of those parts of us that maybe got shut down way too early. And, you know, I just remember, Sarah, I don't know if you know this, but one time I loved, well, my two favorite colors when I was a kid was orange and magenta. Orange seemed to be okay. But I ta- but I remember mom saying one time that she didn't like magenta because it was such a, I don't know, a kid's color or something. And so I just shut down my love for magenta, um, which I have <laughs> recently reawoken. And thinking to myself, we all say things like mom didn't care for magenta. That's fine. Um, but it's funny how when those things happen at different times in your life, how do you take them in? What does that actually mean to you when somebody says something like that? And, and, and how often do we inadvertently do that? How much do we actually need to do that sometimes for our kids ah, and our dogs? These are, these are questions that I have. And there's no one size fits all, right? Right. Um, I can think of some kids that I've worked with um, who it was really important for their safety uh, and, and, and everyone's sanity to stick a lot more to the procedural and, and, and methodical. And in every setting, we have the same expectation for you. And, uh, and it was... But there are other children who can discern the different settings. When you're at school, you need to do this. You, when you're home in the afternoon, this is fine. But when we're going to bed, we start to calm down. You know, so there's, there's some children that can discern those different spaces and times and understand. Mm-hmm. And there's some, some that just you just need because they're individual needs they just need more structure um but within the structure there are still possibilities for exploration 
you know, with with your mother-in-law, you need to give her the recipe for the frosting. But once you've turned her loose with that recipe, then she's in a discovery mode about how to frost with grandchildren. Right, right. And she has to then figure out and be creative and how do I set this up and what do they do and how much do I allow them to do it versus me doing it. Um, and the other thing is uh, tolerating imperfection. Um, I had a mom one time who just finished everything for all of her children because she it would they would look, it would look so much prettier. Yeah. And I could see myself uh, heading in that direction that I have to just really <laughs> put the brakes on. It's like, no, it's good enough, Julie. Good enough is good enough is good enough. My dogs right. have taught me a lot about good enough. You know, mm-hmm. my, my mm-hmm. client's dogs may be really well trained. My dog's good enough. Um, so, yeah, uh, I've, I've learned a lot about what what is good enough. What does that really mean? And remind myself, um, if the cookies aren't frosted, you know, absolutely perfectly, that's fine. The Queen of England's not showing up for tea today that I know of. And if she does, hopefully she'll be gracious enough not to comment on the fact that my kids made the cookies look so bad. Um, so I, I think that, that uh, why, why are we driven? That's the other question is why as adults are we, are we driven to, 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 to beautify or to perfect? What happens to us that we lose that? Oh, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think that um, we love to see things be lovely. There's a there. We have this joy in the visual, the the tactile, the the the, the auditory beauty of the world. And when we're driven to get that cookie just so, that satisfies something in our soul. What we need to remember is that, okay, if I feel that way, I'm going to frost some of the cookies so I can have that satisfying feeling Mm. and let them uh, be imperfect. So it's, it's like, yeah, uh, yeah. Part of, part, part of the adult playfulness is getting everything just right. I mean, sometimes my joy is I'm constantly fussing with my mantle over my fireplace (laughs) and, and, you know, it's like, oh no, this flower vase with these candlesticks. Oh, but wait, I put new flowers in it. They, they need to go over here because this color matches the picture that's over here. And now I'm going to do this. It's like, I just have such joy in um, fiddling and playing. And that's play. That's adult play. So we are playing a lot of times when we don't even realize it. Um, and the other piece that I want to throw in is... Um, tracking the sensory um we talked about a little bit with the bath stuff but just i want to bring that back in is that um if you need to figure out how to let go of of your perfection streak and let the mess go sinking into what are the tactile situation you know with the frosting what's the tactile what's the taste go to shift over to a different sensory system and just kind of enjoy that the stickiness of the frosting and uh oh you're not supposed to lick it off your fingers but you just did um uh those kinds of uh joys can help bring us back out okay and into where the child is if you just remember to to, to engage your sensory systems yourself so one of the things and you'll have to say whether or not you think 
this hits on some of that is I tried. So I came again from a very hospital corners. This is how you do things. There's one standard. Um, you must, you know, sweep the floor from this corner, from the northeast corner to the southwest corner, or you've done it horribly and badly and the world will come to an end. Um, instead of just being happy that someone swept the floor, which is pretty much where I land. So um, when I had kiddos, we used to explore different ways to clean your room, mm. right? So we might put all the yellow things in a pile and put all the red things in a pile and put all the blue things in a pile. Or um, one of my foster sons, who was fantastic, um, did it by dead or alive and then grouped types <laughs> of things. And I love a seven-year-old version of what is dead alive and what makes something dead or alive. And I sincerely toyed with getting him a tiny plastic Elvis and seeing where that would fall. Um, <laughs> right? Because dinosaurs, so listen, I used to love his logic. Like, it was so much fun to just learn how his little brain worked. Because dinosaurs were in alive, plastic dinosaurs. And they were in alive because they used to be animals. Um but plastic is what used to be dinosaur. Oh, okay. Oh, brilliant. Cotton shirts and jeans are alive. They're cotton. Right. So he had all these really interesting, and I never cared. It didn't, like, what mattered to me was that he learned the executive skill of how to keep his room peaceful and uncluttered and a sanctuary and that the things that were important to him were cared for and that he would be able to manage and have that moving forward that the things that were precious to him he wouldn't lose the way that that you know kids in foster care often lose so many things um so he did it he did it by dead or alive he did it by color he did it by what we called stations. So like do the dresser first, do under the bed next. Um, and then he did it by the clock because they in first grade, they were learning uh, an analog clock and that he was like, it just has, he, I think, always seen digital representations of clocks. So he didn't like the whole clock thing. So he would, you know, clean from 12 to one and from one to two. And, you know, at 3.15, we'd stop and have a snack. Um, and so he, we just created a binder with sheet protectors and dry erase markers. And he and I came up with three or four different ways to clean his room. And it, he would just, I would go, which way are we going to clean your, your room this time? Well, today we're going to do it by color. Great. So, okay. What's the first page, right? So I think in those terms, even with the dogs, like I don't necessarily care how the dog learns to politely stay away from the door when the doors open. And so whether that's I teach them to go lay on their bed in the other room or whether they go to their crate when they hear the door open or whether they need a leash tied to something, but they go to that leash when the door opens or whatever, however a family chooses to solve it, as long as it's kind, as long as we're teaching it, I like a lot of arrows on the flowchart. Because my way to clean your bedroom is not necessarily the best way. It's just a way. So I think sometimes we get caught up in, like, I get a lot of people in class to go, well, what's the hand signal or the cue for that? I'm like, there's not a magic one. Like, I haven't patented any. 
patenting is expensive, right? Like you do you, like you do what works for your family. So if I'm working with a family with a toddler who wants the dog sometimes to be out of his face and where that toddler is, is going all done and throwing his hands up in the air when he's frustrated. Well, then I'm going to adopt that cue that that child can do. And I'm going to empower the dog making that cue that that child can do mean go lay on your bed and we're going to drop off a cookie. So, so that the child has some agency and the dog, the the child feels powerful. Now the hysterical thing with that for all of you parents who are thinking, well, crud, why didn't I think of that is when you do that, then the child typically is in love with the dog, right? Because now the dog is the only one that they're the boss of. And so And so now they're all done and the dog, so they're frustrated, right? They all done and the dog goes to the bed and smiles and wags at them because he's expecting a cookie. And the child's like, oh, let me go get you a cookie. And now they're giggling together again. Tina, you have given such a rich set of ideas in this Uh conversation. And I, and I kind of want to highlight some of them. Oftentimes, if you think of it, you know, you're, you're, brushing your teeth at night and you realize you did this wrong. If you set the intention, but you also say tomorrow morning at eight o'clock, I'm going to get all the water bottles out because we're going to go on this trip, you know, car trip today. Um, I'm going to do this at eight, you know, just, just before I, um, just after I've put the coffee in and just before I get the cereal out, I'm going to set up the water bottles, just plan it in your head ahead of time. I think that helps us a lot to get ahead of the curve. Um, and so that's that's one strategy that I think is really important. The other thing that I'm really intrigued about is the time you took with this foster child. Clearly, he you weren't just saying, go clean your room and turning to cook dinner. Clearly, you spent time in the room with him. You observed how he did it. You had conversations about it. You set up binders. You you put a lot of, you front loaded it. You helped him organize it. And that kind of time, just really allowing for you to say, this is an important thing for this child to learn he, as a survival skill for him to, to be able to be able to track his items so that he feels safe so that things are there so that he has a calm environment is is a critical thing for him so i'm going to put the time into it and and then i'm sure that what you found is things got easier and easier well so, so there were some other pieces right it it yeah. did not come out of some big like grandiose plan. It was that I learned that a seven-year-old's definition of a clean bedroom and my definition of a clean bedroom were hugely disparate, right? And we're going to be a point of conflict. And I don't, I don't want conflict. I just don't. I'd, I'd rather, I go, oh, okay, our definition's off. So it all started with me messing up his room and taking pictures. And then me completely cleaning his room and taking pictures of what done looked like, right? So we now have a common definition. And then, and this is where, so we did all the, how all the different ways to do it, but then, and this is the part I think that most families go, wait, what is, 
we, on school days, when the kids were at school, we cleaned bedrooms five times a day. And on non-school days, we cleaned bedrooms 10 times a day. So that cleaning bedrooms never took more than between three and five minutes, right? It was always easy to clean. Um, because for me, one of the things I struggle with is the horrible mess that is my world because I don't do it a little bit at a time all the time. And so in the beginning, I was doing it with them. But very quickly, I was doing whatever they were doing in their rooms. I was taking that five minutes to reset the kitchen. So I was retraining me, too, because parenting, you know, three children under the age of 12 and having nine dogs when you had never done that before was turns out a little bit overwhelming. So so I learned very quickly that my natural mayhem was not going to like this was not, I was going to be exhausted and frustrated and overwhelmed. And so I didn't want that for them because they're watching. They're, they're learning whether I planned or not. We lead by example. Um, and you also, uh, and, and, and to my point, you, you put a lot of time into this task. And I would say, I, I'm sure it's the same with with training dogs that you pick one thing at a time. Let's, let's, let's learn how to clean our rooms. And we've mastered that and we've gotten on the schedule and it's habitual and you do it five or to 10 times a day. Then let's work on how to wash dishes. Well, the other thing I was going to say too is, is that when I, when I tell owners who have puppies, you know, um, look, having puppies like having kids is it's really not for the faint of heart or uh, there's a lot of work to having a puppy. It's like having a baby. But if you, if you do this, if you do, if you stick to your house training routine and you stick to your training routine, you're front end loading this puppy so that we set it up to be successful early on. It's going to pay off for you in the long run. So these are going to become good habits that your dog has. And it, it goes as, um, not just with, with things we teach our dogs, but just the way in which we, we interact with them. How do I choose to talk to my dog? How do I choose to, you know, um, just interact when you're being a good dog? What do I do if you're being a bad dog? Setting up these patterns of behavior for both of you may take some front end loading, but it's going to pay off in the long run. Just like, you know, you feed your dog good food from the get-go. You're building a strong dog, a strong, healthy dog from the bottom up. You can't, it's not, it's not magic. It doesn't make all health problems go away, but you're more likely to have a long-lived, healthy dog if you take care of its health needs from the beginning, and that becomes a habit. So I think that what we're talking about here is yeah, there's, there's got to you, you and your family have to find that balance between providing that structure, those wise constraints that make us free, and then enjoying the freedom within those constraints to allow for the creative expression of our individuality. And of course, um, there is always that. That's also debatable too. What exactly those wise constraints are what exactly safety is. I understand all that, but I think every child has the right and every dog has the right to feel safe within their world. And when you provide that and then you allow them to be the creative souls that they are, 
there's so much joy. I also love the creativity within the constraints. I mean, Tina's uh, examples of there's a, this has to happen, but there's a million ways to do it. Right. Is 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 and 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 it comes to individual differences and skill sets and and spatial requirements and all sorts of different things that go on that are restraints that now we get to bounce off of and how we can how can we play with this and watching and listening to your dog watching and listening to your child and seeing where their natural tendencies are is another key to allowing that creativity to to keep flowing just really being a good observer for me as a parent i i took my role as a foster parent pretty seriously. Like I wanted to bless them. So I really did every day, like try to go, okay, so that this part was unholy mess. Like we were terrible at this today. So what can I adjust for tomorrow that maybe we just do that a modicum closer to what the goal is? And so I think that's that all of that stuff informed how I interact with the dogs too. Like whether or not that dog learns sit on that day does not matter one iota to me. I care that they love learning and that our relationship is strong and they like interacting and they're curious. They're they're feeling confident enough to try things and I'm totally fine going, well, I'll follow you down that lane and see, see where that nuttiness heads because they may come up with some creative thing that I never thought of. Um, that's super charming and super fun. I think that the, the summation here is that, um, don't be afraid to allow some creativity in how you deal with yourself, your child, your dog, and I tell people, you know, when we're, we're playing, when we're doing clicker training, you know, if the worst thing that happens is an ill-time click and an extra treat, I can live with that. You know, if you can live with that, I can live with that because that's just not that bad of a thing. And maybe that ill-timed click and that ill-timed treat will mean that we're reinforcing something that turns out to be quite wonderful. So I think that um, there's a, there's, and not to say that there's so much an inner child in all of us, but there's inner creativity that we can allow out um, in ways that maybe we hadn't realized and that we owe it to ourselves and to our kids and to our dogs to, to truly be free to be ourselves and to allow them to be themselves. So any other thoughts real quick as we wrap this up? I think you did a great job summarizing. This was fun to talk to you yeah, guys well, again. It was great to have you back. Thank you for having me on. <laughs> Always. We, we get requests. I get requests and comments about you each time people listen to the the podcast that we did with you previously. They really enjoyed the dynamic Um, and and bringing this parenting perspective in from like a little bit of a different different cut. So I, I always enjoy having you on. I do too. Okay. Well, anyway, thank you all for joining us on Your Family Dog. Um, Be sure to like us on your social media um, and wherever it is you get your podcasts because that way other people will find us and can enjoy all this creative fun as well. So thanks. And we'll see you next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. 
Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.